0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, May 24th. I'm Marco Werman. No quick solution in sight for Europe's financial crisis... One advisor to the German government says the crisis is like a game of chicken between Greece and the rest of the Eurozone.
1: They have the smaller car, we have the bigger car, but if these two cars collide, in the end it's a very dangerous thing for both
0: sides. Also today, monitoring the vote in Egypt and new server farms
2: in Scandinavia. There is a global megatrend towards moving north, so we're a part of that megatrend.
3: The world is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
0: I'm Marka Werman. This is The World. Millions of Egyptians have now cast their ballots in their country's first truly competitive presidential election. And after two days of voting, it's time to wait. Official results are expected only in the coming days. If none of the 13 candidates wins over half the vote, the two top contestants will face each other in a runoff next month. There's a lot at stake for Egypt, 15 months after the Arab Spring Revolution that ousted longtime leader Hosni Mubarak. Some of those trying to replace him are former members of his regime. Others are Islamists. Which direction the country is headed in depends on who the winner will be. Meanwhile, questions are being raised about just how free and how fair this election has actually been. The world's Middle East correspondent Matthew Bell reports.
4: Outside a polling station in the Nile Delta city of Mansoura, an Egyptian army officer confronts four women holding homemade signs. Tempers start to flare when the army officer asks the women to move along. He says they're breaking election rules by engaging in campaign activities on voting day. The women are holding signs that tell people to remember the martyrs of the revolution. They say they're not supporting any specific candidate and should be allowed to stay. Things calm down pretty quickly when the army officer lets the women have their way. It's just one small example in a long list of alleged election violations. In a crowded office in downtown Cairo, young volunteers at an organization called Murakba switch back and forth between their cell phones and their laptops, They started a hotline to take calls from Egyptians to report suspected election violations. Yosra Saleh says they've received hundreds of calls since yesterday. She says they've had calls about people campaigning close to polling stations and even inside where the voting takes place, about voters filling out more than one ballot and about officials opening polling stations late or closing them early. For the most part, the violations have been relatively minor. When I talk with people getting out to vote in Egypt's first real presidential contest, nearly everyone has high hopes this will be a truly fair election. But some have doubts. Izat Mustafa is a banker standing on the sidewalk outside of a Cairo polling center. He says he dearly wants the process to be legitimate, but there are problems, especially with voter rolls. Some people who want to vote can't find their names, he says, and others shouldn't be there at all, including army and police officers. They are banned from voting. There have also been reports of dead people showing up on voter rolls. At this point, I head into the voting center and ask the judge who's in charge about some of these alleged infractions. His name is Osama Mohammed Bakr.
2: Of course, I'm taking this very serious. This is our first time to to have this. And those poor people who are standing outside in the sun, they have the right to choose what they want, whatever he was, right-wing or leftist, whatever. Uh, they have the right uh, to choose. And we are uh, judges in, in the court. We should apply justice even here in, in the polling stations. There are
4: independent observers monitoring the Egyptian election process. That includes 50 representatives from the Arab League. Former President Jimmy Carter is also leading a delegation of monitors. But a Western diplomat who did not want to be named told me the effort falls short of meeting international standards. For some Egyptians, though, the problem goes beyond how election officials and monitors are operating on the ground. Nobel Prize winner Mohamed el Baradai says the whole episode is taking place under a cloud of uncertainty, so he's not going to vote at all.
5: I am not taking part in the election because I do not believe that there is a level playing field, that uh, we should have had a constitution first that defined the basic values under which every Egyptian is going to live under, uh, that defined the powers of the president that we have to to elect. Right now, we are voting for a president that does not have his job description.
4: But that doesn't mean the job won't be filled. Despite some skepticism, much of the Egyptian public seems eager to get started with a new era by choosing a new president. No single candidate is expected to win a majority in the first round of voting. A runoff election between the top two contenders will take place next month. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in
0: Cairo. The euro hit a near two-year low against the dollar today. That's after yesterday's European Union summit failed to reach an agreement on how to stave off Greek economic ruin and protect the rest of the eurozone. There was talk of austerity and of coupling that with a plan to get Europe's economies growing again. But in the end, there was no real plan outlined to do it. And that leaves the eurozone with a very murky path moving forward. The world's Clark Boyd reports from Brussels.
6: Solidarity and growth have joined austerity, as European leaders' favorite words to utter in public these days. As the leaders fumble for a working solution to Europe's debt crisis, skeptics are more inclined to use terms like Grexit, short for Greek exit, or even Drachmageddon. Here in Brussels, Eurozone leaders continue to downplay the idea that Greece should or will exit the single currency. Newly elected French President François Hollande made this pledge before meeting his
3: counterparts.
6: I will do everything I can to persuade the Greeks to choose to stay, Hollande said, and everything to convince Europeans who might doubt the necessity of keeping Greece in the Eurozone. The first part isn't that hard. Polls indicate a majority of Greeks want to remain in the euro. The second part is tougher. There's more and more talk in Brussels of countries readying their own national economic plans in the event of Greece's departure from the single currency. European leaders also discussed creating a European-wide set of bonds that would help the bloc distribute and manage its debts more effectively. France is in favor, but Germany, the eurozone's largest economy, isn't. And there's also still wrangling over the focus on austerity. Francis Hollande is pushing for measures to stimulate growth and employment. The Germans have indicated that they're now willing to discuss growth.
2: For the German government, austerity is not everything.
6: Guido Westerwelle is Germany's foreign minister.
2: We know that budget discipline is one pillar, Solidarity is the second pillar, and of course growth as a result of competitiveness is the third pillar.
6: Okay, fine. Sounds like there might be some common ground, right? But Europe's leaders haven't put forth any real plans, says Vicky Price, a former adviser to the British government.
5: There's nothing concrete about how to resume growth. Uh, the talks about Greece are we're interested in keeping Greece in the euro. What does that mean? Uh, what it does do, unfortunately, is it gives the wrong impression and the Greeks think that indeed they may have to leave the euro, and therefore they're withdrawing their deposits. And that will happen uh, increasingly, and the banking system will probably uh, collapse before we even
2: have the next election.
6: And those Greek elections are in less than a month. On the streets of Athens, some are fed up with the political wrangling in Brussels. I'm counting on France, on President Hollande, said this man. Maybe he can persuade the Germans. He continued, I want them to give us more time and be more flexible we are the ones who lose, he said. The politicians always win. Peter Bofinger is an economic advisor to the German government.
1: What we observe right now is a game of chicken between Greece and the rest of the Euro area. I think uh, they have the smaller car, we have the bigger car. But if if these two cars collide, in the end, it's, it's a very dangerous thing for both sides. And that's why I hope that this game of chicken will find a solution.
6: It seems an apt metaphor. Many here in Europe say they feel like they're watching a slow-motion car crash, especially in the run-up to next month's elections. And neither driver, it seems, is inclined to turn the wheel or stomp on the brakes to avoid it. For The World, this is Clark Boyd in Brussels.
0: Germany has more than the Eurozone crisis to worry about. Another top concern is the Hell's Angels Motorcycle Club. The German government classifies the group as an organized crime syndicate. One German state has even banned the biker gang, whose members are known for their Harleys, tattoos, and menacing looks. But it was today when officials showed just how much the gang concerns them. About a thousand police officers fanned out across northern Germany in a massive crackdown against Hells Angels members. Some even repelled out of helicopters, raiding houses where gang members live. Tobias Morchner is a newspaper crime reporter in Hannover one of the cities where raids took place Tobias what did you see
1: It was a massive raid in Hannover today uh, with a helicopter as you mentioned with lots of police officers around the house they were armed they were masked and they um they shot uh, with their with their arms they shot a, a little watchdog so it was a massive raid, as you can tell.
0: And aside from that watchdog, uh, did the bikers, uh, alleged bikers, fight back? Were there any violent confrontations?
1: No, no, yeah. no. The police came at 5 o'clock in the morning. The boss here in Hannover, he's called Frank Hannebut. Uh, he was asleep, and he was uh, woken up by uh, the helicopter, and there was no one there except uh, his 11-year-old son and his, um, his girlfriend.
0: When you say boss, you mean boss of the local Hells Angels chapter?
1: It's hard to tell. He's officially the boss of the local Hells Angel chapter, but he acts like he is the boss in the northern parts of Germany, um, and the police thinks he is one of the leading figures in the Hells Angel scene in whole Germany. So
0: Mm. it's both. So why are the police cracking down? Did something happen with the Hells Angels there and other biker gangs that pushed officials to this point?
1: Uh, The whole thing started in another town. It's called Kiel. The chapter in Kiel uh, was closed down in January. Why? And the police, uh, because of illegal activities like dealing with weapons, drugs, and th- those kinds of things. And the police still think the members of this gang uh, are still active in those fields, so they um, started this big raid. And they came down to Hanover because Frank Harnburg has such a big influence, even on those charters in Kiel and Hamburg.
0: It must have been startling for locals to see police uh, lowered from helicopters onto rooftops. What's been the public reaction to this enforcement campaign?
1: The public was kind of afraid uh, at 5 o'clock in the morning. They were woken up as well, uh, as well as the uh, Frank Hanebut. You must imagine it's a quiet little town where he lives. It's a few kilometers outside of Hannover. They were, they were shocked, as you can tell.
0: You know, the number of biker clubs in Germany has doubled since 2005. Why are they so popular?
1: That's it's hard to tell. They have this special organization. Um, it's interesting for especially men to be part of this community where no one else can get into and where no one knows exactly what they are doing, where they one for all and all for one, this kind of feeling you get in these clubs, and this is why why they are so popular.
0: Is there any connection to Germany's right-wing radicals and neo-Nazis that's raising eyebrows among the police?
1: That's what the police told us today. Um, the group in Kiel sold weapons to the right-wings, lots of weapons, and there were also members who were in the Health Angels and in some right-wing groups as well, so yes.
0: So the German public, specifically the people in Hanover, may have been shocked and even scared to see this raid today. But do they support the crackdown on the biker gangs?
1: I guess, yes. There were lots of uh, fights in the last uh, couple of months out in the open in the streets where the public is. Uh, and it's, it's kind of dangerous uh, uh, situations we had here in, in Germany. Uh, so I guess, yes, the public is, is OK with this raid.
0: Tobias Marchner is a reporter for the Hanoverische Allgemeine newspaper. Thank you very much. Thank you as well. Coming up later in the program, our series Beyond Class continues. Today we examine class issues in China and why 60 years of communism haven't improved the lot of Chinese farmers and rural villagers. You can keep up with our series on Twitter by
3: using the hashtag #BeyondClass. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Today's geo-quiz is high-tech. We all know that companies like Facebook and Google have their headquarters in California. But what about their servers? You know, the machines that store all the information and process all the mouse clicks that keep the cloud afloat? Those facilities can be located anywhere. And more and more, these server farms are being built in chilly northern places. In fact, the countries of Scandinavia are competing to attract this sort of server business. Facebook, for example, is currently building a data center in Sweden. For our quiz today, we want you to name that location. It's a small Swedish port city just south of the Arctic Circle, and it's a mere 550 miles north of Stockholm. Final clue, this city is considered the capital of Swedish Lapland. If you listen closely, you'll hear the answer in our next story. The world's Laura Lynch visited another server site in Norway.
7: A gentle breeze, a few seabirds circling the sky, a few sailboats bobbing in waves. This is the sound and picture of serenity on the small island of Rennesøy off the west coast of Norway, but up until just a few years ago, this island had a secret. Ketil always wondered what was hidden just about a mile away from where he grew up. You were born here on the island.
2: Yes, I was born here on the island, and I have I remember well the back to the 60s when they start building this uh, NATO. Uh,
7: Whatever it was yeah, whatever did, did it was. you did you know what it was we know that it was uh, secured and it was uh, some military area it was something very secure and undeniably military in 1964 NATO blasted its way into the side of a mountain on the southern tip of the island inside it constructed a safe secure place to store torpedoes and mines Mehus and his buddies were barred from going anywhere near the site the only road in was blocked. Now, nearly six decades later, the Cold War is over, the weapons are gone, the secret has been revealed. And guess what? The blasting is happening all over again. Rock and rubble fly in all directions as I watch from the safety of a boat offshore. The hidden relic of yesteryear is being transformed into something high-tech and high-profile, part of a booming business in Scandinavia.
3: Today, the world is inhabited by a vast amount of data, rapidly growing. The amount doubles every 18 months. By 2015...
7: This is the promotional video for the Green Mountain Data Centre, the new business taking over the old site.
2: So now we're getting to the actual site here. Knut
7: Molag drives us down the old, once-forbidden NATO road to the site. Crews are widening the narrow route. All traces of NATO's weaponry are gone. What remains are vast, empty rooms that MOLAG is thrilled to show off.
2: And then we have three halls. This is hall number one, two, and three. And I'll turn on the light here
7: so you can see it. So we're walking into the mountain, right? We're,
2: now we're about 150 metres into the mountain. Okay. And there is about 100 to 150 metres of mountain above us.
7: Molag's firm is looking to sign up any number of companies looking to store their data here on the thousands of computer servers that will soon fill these halls. Servers are the machines that store and process our email, preserve our medical records, carry out web searches, and perform countless other tasks. Up until about a decade ago, they were pretty much housed in a room in the offices of an individual company. But as internet usage has exploded. So as the demand for more and more data storage space. And since all that activity sucks up power and generates heat, the data centers not only need more room, they're searching the world for places where it's cheaper to keep everything cool. Molag, standing inside the mountain, says Scandinavia is just about the perfect place.
2: There is a global megatrend towards moving north and to colder climates, climates and so, so we're a part of that megatrend.
7: And there's a growing list of other firms heading north. Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook are building giant server farms of their own with hundreds of thousands of computers. Facebook searched northern Europe climbs for months before choosing to build in the small Swedish city of Luleå.
8: The building's about 1,100 feet long, so it's a pretty big, it's a big building.
7: That's Tom Furlong, Facebook's vice president of site operations. For him, Lulio's attractions are the kinds of things that might deter cold-weather wimps from living there. It's freezing much of the year. But that means Facebook saves big bucks. No air conditioning needed. Just let the outside air in.
8: We're a business, and
6: we're always looking to optimize our costs as much as possible. The more efficient we can make the facility, we end up spending less money, which allows us actually to invest more
8: Uh, and deploy more infrastructure to support our constantly growing product set
7: uh,
8: and hopefully support the users better.
7: It's not only the cold air that sold Facebook. The area also has abundant, reliable and renewable hydropower, something that also features at the Green Mountain Centre back in Norway. At the Norway side, workers are building a plant that will pump in cool water from the fjord to keep the data centre cool. And Knut Molag, ever the salesman, points out that this location was built to resist almost any kind of threat, critically important to businesses that rely on the Internet.
2: Natural disasters, security against terror, resilience to uh, power disruptions. You want it to be operational 24-7. Even half an hour or five minutes is a disaster.
7: Calling the new enterprise Green Mountain is no accident. Most of the growing number of companies setting up in the region like to emphasize that while it's saving the money, it's also environmentally correct. Already, there are estimates that data centers account for 1.5 to 2% of all global electricity use, similar to a mid-sized country like Spain. Moving north means cutting energy use and boosting their green credentials. Just over the hill from the site, Kjetil Mehus is standing on the deck of the new hotel he's opened here. He can't wait for the high-tech guests to start flooding in.
2: I'm very happy about that. And this is a a very correct type of business. So for this island, this is good.
7: In fact, when it's up and running, Green Mountain won't employ more than 20 people. Facebook's operation, which could triple in size in the coming years, will also have few full-time staff. But the Nordic communities that are vying to play host to these vast server farms believe there will be spin-off benefits Lulio hopes to become a high-tech hub, for example. None of this means data centres will disappear from the U.S. anytime soon. There's simply too much demand. But here in Norway and Iceland and Sweden and Finland, there are high hopes that their frigid climbs will ensure that the region becomes the hottest thing in the world of high-tech. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch. Renesoi Island, Norway.
0: You can see Laura's pictures of Renesoi Island and the data site being carved out of the mountain there. They're at theworld.org. And you probably heard the answer to our geo-quiz in Laura's report. It's the Swedish city of Lulio. That's where Facebook is building a new server farm. No AC needed. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media. I'm Marco Wurman. Ahead, how an Australian accountant got a very rare interview with Neil Armstrong. The former astronaut recalled getting ready to land on the moon.
2: I see a smooth spot right up near the top of the screen. It looks like that's a good place to be. And I'm running low on fuel. I have less than two minutes of fuel.
3: The world is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. China's Communist Party came to power, promising to end China's traditional class structure. Scholars, landlords, and merchants, the former privileged classes, were stripped of their privileges and sometimes of their lives. Farmers and workers were to be elevated in status and opportunity. But more than 60 years on, farmers and workers are again at the bottom of the heap. And while there's a growing middle class, China has one of the world's biggest and fastest growing rates of income disparity. The privileged and wealthiest class now is made up largely of Communist Party officials, their families, and friends. In today's part of our series, Beyond Class, the world's Mary Kay Magsad reports from Jiangxi, one of China's poorest provinces.
8: The rolling hills and rivers of Jiangxi's Xuanyu County are picturesque but this has long been one of the poorest places in China. That's why Mao Zedong came here for a month in 1930, almost two decades before taking power. He came to the county seat, Cheng Ning, which was then a dusty little village of about 1,500 people. He wanted to understand the problems and aspirations of villagers and to see how the class system worked here. This guide is giving a tour of the rooms where Mao Zedong stayed, the iron-framed twin bed where he slept, the long plank table where he sat and talked with locals. The guide says Mao talked to farmers, merchants, local officials, an imperial scholar, even disaffected youth. He noted in colorful detail who felt oppressed by whom, how the classes interacted, how control of property was key to wealth and power. Assisting Mao was a 24-year-old local named Gu Boa, the grandson of landlords. His family was renowned for sending many scholars over the centuries to serve the emperor. But Gu Buo wanted change, says his grand nephew Guan who I caught up with in his village home. He says Gu Bo thought the class system he'd benefited from was unfair. So, once he joined the revolution, he burned down the house of his grandfather, the landlord. Gu Bois' brothers were revolutionaries, too. Four of them joined Mao on the long march. Three died. Gu Anjian is now a wizened 74-year-old, retired after 40 years of serving as local village chief. He sits at a round table in the kitchen of his village home with his brother and son and nephew, while the women in the family prepare a lunch. The Gu family shows what has and hasn't changed in China's class structure since Mao Zedong came here more than 80 years ago. The family used to have more than its share of imperial scholars, but today, none of the men here have gone beyond ninth grade. Mao tried to abolish capitalism, but the village chief's younger brother, Guan Jia, did foreign trade in steel. I ask what he thinks Gu would have thought of his grandnephew making a career in capitalism. (laughs) Guan Jia says, rather defensively, that it was a state-run trading company he worked for, at least at first. But in China, being connected to the state or the Communist Party doesn't mean you're not capitalist. More than 90 percent of China's richest people are party members, and state-owned enterprises control most of China's wealth – because the system is skewed to favor them over private businesses. The disgraced senior official Bo Xilai used the system to amass great wealth for his family and to take down rivals, seize their wealth, and sometimes execute them in the name of fighting crime and corruption. His wife stands accused of murdering a British businessman who reportedly helped the family transfer large sums overseas and threatened to talk if he wasn't paid more for his trouble. So forget about the national anthem, with its exhortation to arise, those who refuse to be slaves. These days, those who want to get rich join the party, and the party these days wants the rich to join it. So wealth stays concentrated in the hands of its members, who will then have little incentive to change the system. And it seems to be working. The richest 75 members of China's legislature, the National People's Congress, have an average net worth of $1.2 billion each. The Gu family is not in those ranks. It may have sacrificed its sons for the revolution. Gu Bo died young, as well as his three brothers on the long march, but the family now lives a simple village life. The village chief's 36-year-old son, Gu Zisong, scoffs when I ask the family if they're proud that their relative worked with Mao to try to make China more egalitarian. If He says, pride? What pride? If there were any glory in it, we wouldn't live here. Guzi Song makes his living growing oranges, a line of work that has helped pull many farmers out of poverty since it caught on seven or eight years ago. You can see their profits in the new concrete and brick houses rising up in the village. Gu Zisong admits life here is better than when he was a kid, when the village consisted of mud brick houses with no electricity or indoor plumbing and dirt roads that turned to muck in the rain. Now the roads are good, and most homes have refrigerators, TVs, even the occasional computer, which allows people to see that their lives might have gotten better, but the elite in China are doing far better still. At the goose kitchen table, family members include a former local official, a trader, and a farmer, a lot like the classes of people Mao talked to when he was here in 1930. So I can't help but ask, do you think there are class differences in China today?
5: (laughs) (laughs) They seem surprised by the question.
8: Gu Zisong, the orange farmer, says, No, today's China is different. There aren't any classes anymore. His cousin chimes in. Today, it's not exploitation. The people are rich. Actually, it's hard to answer this. It may be hard because Chinese, from their first days at school, learned that Mao abolished the class system. So they figure any inequalities that exist now must be something else. Another Gu has an easier time with the question. He's down the street where he runs a kindergarten. Gu Yue is 34. He was a migrant worker for five years, in a sweater factory, in a city
5: 250 miles away.
8: He says he didn't really like the city. People looked down on migrant workers. Many workers were so underpaid and overworked that strikes and protests were common, even though independent trade unions in China are illegal. Gu says his boss was okay, but even in his factory as a migrant worker, you could only move up so far. The good jobs went to local people. So when he'd made a bit of money, he came back here and started a factory of his own. (laughs) Gu Shang says his factory, at its peak, employed more than 120 fellow villagers and produced 4 million sweaters a year, sold mostly to the United Arab Emirates and Hong Kong. The factory had to close last year when too many customers went too long without paying. Still, Gu Yue-shang is proud of having helped his fellow villagers get a leg up without having to go through the hardship and humiliation he endured as a migrant worker. His efforts have also pushed him nicely into China's middle class. It's a mobility villagers here didn't have at the time Mao visited, But with wages and expectations rising, Gu Yue-sheng doubts the next generation will find it as easy as it was for him, if they're not educated.
7: He
6: says
8: that's what the kindergarten is about, to help kids from this village get a head start and learn to love learning. Gu Yuexiang says these kids will be growing up in an IT era with almost half of China's population already online and an increasing number entering the middle class. Without a good education, he says, they don't have a chance. But, he says, a good education is far from enough. If these kids want to have a prosperous middle class life, you have to fight for your life. On this construction site, orange farmers lost the fight for their livelihoods and property developers with the right government contacts won. It's in Xuonu County's biggest town, Changning, the place where Mao stayed when it was just a village. Now, there are about 100,000 people here, and luxury apartment towers are rising like mushrooms beside a river where poor women still do laundry. In one of the upscale complexes, I find Huang Chuanfu, the general manager, talking to a contractor. The complex is just across the river from a fancy new government building that's lit up at night in gaudy, multicolor splendor. When I drop in unannounced, he's wary. He asks, Are you going to ask any political questions? We're a legal company. But he's happy to talk about his project. He says he's got almost 700 apartments selling for almost $100,000 each, and he's sold most of them. He'll be in profit when he sells 80% of them, and he's confident he will. I ask if that's optimistic, given that property prices are dropping in much of China and that Xuonu is officially ranked as one of China's poorest counties. No, he says, Almost every shuanu farmer has orange trees. They make good money from those and then move to town so their kids can get a good education. He says farmers account for about one-third of those who have bought apartments already, and he's betting that more will keep coming to town. Even if there's a temporary drop in property prices, he says, the trend is clear. China's economy will keep growing, and people's lives will only get better. The villagers who lost their orange groves here to developers aren't so sure. Luo Dingyuan is 66. He lives in a little courtyard house just up the hill from the new apartment complex. His family has lived here for generations. He says he used to have an acre of orange trees, which netted him a nice annual income. But then the government came and said they needed his land for development. It gave him $48,000. Not bad, given that most of the 30 million or so rural Chinese who have been turfed off their land in the name of development over the past dozen years got little or nothing. Even in this area, another group of villagers near here was moved by force, locals say, with some 500 police coming in to clear them. So, Luo Dingyuan could count himself lucky. He doesn't. He says the money might last 10 years, and then what? He only has a second-grade education. Farming is all he knows, and now he has no land left to farm. His five grown kids are off as migrant workers, but they barely make enough for themselves. And his government pension is laughably small, about $8 a month. Meanwhile, he sees luxury apartments he'll never be able to afford rising where his orange grove used to be. It's not exactly what Mao had promised villagers here, about how the communist revolution would transform their lives and create an egalitarian society. Luo is old enough to remember when the Communist Party came to power, and actually, he says, it was never like that. He says, the party officials always had the power. During the post Great Leap Forward famine of the late 50s and early 60s, officials would stop villagers who tried to leave to forage for food, and many starved to death, while the officials had enough to eat. And now, I ask, what do you think of how this place is developing now? He says, it's hard to say. It's good for the city to grow, I guess. But the government takes our land, and the bosses of these projects pay them off and make the profits. It's not fair. We have no power, and we just have to accept our fate. Landlords, corrupt officials, underpaid workers, farmers on the short end of the stick. Sounds like the old class system, doesn't it? I ask. No, no, law says. Now we don't have classes in China, at least not like before. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad, Chuanu County, Jiangxi, China.
0: Mary Kay took some great pictures of the people she spoke with and the places she visited for that story. You can see them at theworld.org. Tomorrow, our final installment in Beyond Class. We consider whether social class is relevant anymore in some countries. Our politicians here in the U.S. certainly keep talking about it.
4: Since when are hard working men and women who, 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 are, who are putting in a hard day's work every day, since when are they special interests? Since, since when is the idea that we, we look out for one another a bad thing? You know, I, I remember my old, old Fred Tenkett, and he, he used to say, what is it about working men and women they
3: find so offensive?
0: And over in Britain, class seems as relevant politically as ever.
7: I think that not only are Cameron Osborne two posh boys who don't know the price of milk, but they're two arrogant posh boys who show no remorse, no contrition, and no passion to want to understand the lives of others. And that is their real crime.
0: Is class still relevant around the globe? We'll have that story tomorrow here on The World. Our entire series, Beyond Class, is also online at theworld.org. And by the way, tomorrow you'll be able to join some of our reporters on the series in a live web chat. It starts at 2 p.m. Eastern time. That's our live web chat on class around the globe tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern at theworld.org. Hope you can join us. Just ahead, one small step for man, one giant interview for an Australian accountant
3: on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Goat Rodeo. Follow cellist Yo-Yo Ma and friends on a musical journey full of lively, unscripted bluegrass melodies. Tomorrow night at 9, 8 central on PBS.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. It's one
4: small step for man, one giant leap for man.
0: That, of course, is astronaut Neil Armstrong describing man's first step on the moon. That's what he's known for. But in the nearly 50 years since his moonwalk, Armstrong's also developed another reputation. He doesn't give interviews. But recently, he relented. He spoke at length with an Australian accountant. Alex Malley is the CPA who landed the rare interview. And how did he do it? Well, Malley says he knew something that a lot of people don't know. Armstrong's father was an auditor. So now the website of Certified Practicing Accountants of Australia features some videos of that interview. Armstrong describes the minutes before the lunar landing while looking at some
2: footage of it. I see a smooth spot right up near the top of the screen. It looks like that's a, that's a good place to be. And I'm running low on fuel. I have less than two minutes of fuel.
0: Armstrong also told Malley that he's pained by the U.S. government's decision to cut NASA's budget
2: in recent years. NASA's been one of the most successful public investments in motivating students to do well and achieve all they can achieve. And it's sad that we are turning the program in a direction where it will reduce the amount of motivation and stimulation that it provides to young people.
0: After the interview, Armstrong, who's now 81, received an honorary membership in CPA Australia – by the way, the videos also include footage of the landing, along with Google lunar images. And we have a link to those videos at theworld.org. Finally today, we're going to speak with an innovator of the Ghanaian musical style known as high life. Ebo Taylor is 76 years old and still going strong. Before we hear from the man himself, here's the title track from his latest album, Apiaqua Bridge. Taylor, the title refers to an actual bridge in Ghana. What is the meaning of the bridge?
5: The bridge is in my hometown in Southpond. And the Apiakwa Bridge is so essential for lovers. That's where a lot of people meet their girlfriends. And so partners, couples go on the bridge and they they kind of hold hands and romance. mm, Yes, that's the place for romance, you know.
0: I think you play Ebo Taylor uh, for our listeners who don't know it it's called High Life there have been many different types of High Life over the years from the rootsy big band High Life of the 40s and 50s to hip life in the 90s uh, is there a standard High Life or has it evolved in such a way that people who play the style in Ghana wouldn't recognize it today
5: yeah yeah um, what I'm doing with, with High Life is to give it more um, you know funk in it and uh, give it a jazzy feeling I, I think uh, people still recognize her life in Ghana. Hip life is reserved for the teenagers mm-hmm. and um, the adults. Are really go for the hard life. And the hip life cannot do without the high life itself because they have to have elements of her life in their music.
0: Well, let's listen to a track from uh, your new album, Apiaqua Bridge. Uh, this track is called Asomdui. And uh, I think it'll give us a really good taste of what you're doing to High Life today in 2012. We should point out this track, Assamdui, and all of the songs on your album, Apiakwa Bridge, were performed by you and your band, Afrobeat Academy. Afrobeat Academy is based in Berlin, and you split your time between Berlin and Accra, Ghana. You're speaking to us right now from Berlin. Is Afrobeat Academy the band that you gig with around the globe, or is it just a studio band? Are they German? Are they Ghanaians who live in Germany? Tell me about them.
5: The Afrobeat Academy is led by uh, Ben uh, Wolf. Uh, and it's, it's established by musicians in Berlin who are very much interested in high life and Afrobeat. Uh, they, they visited Ghana and, and, uh, and they invited me in to come to Berlin. And it's the same guys that I take around. You know, It's a group that has backed me for the past two
0: years. Mm. Ibo Taylor, I'd like to go out with another track from your album, and I think it, it'll be uh, good for our American listeners to hear because it's a very spare take on high life. Tell us about mm-hmm. the track called Barima. It's unplugged high life, and the tone is somber, not a usual tone for high life. It's dedicated to your late wife, I understand.
5: Yeah. Tomorrow, my wife, I, I, I wrote this number and performed a, as an cappella with the traditional adinkum, guitar background They mention They mention They mention They mention Ebokobla May your very man nayi swear to me
0: Your wife uh died not that long ago uh last no, last year
5: No yeah, yeah yes last year when I had come back from Japan.
0: Yeah. I, I, I heard that you went into the studio and you recorded this in one take. Yes, yes, I did. And I was so distressed when I finished it. But the, the product is beautiful. Ibo Taylor, the new album is Apia Kwa Bridge. Thanks very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much too.
5: Saline. <laughs> Saline. Samnazi won't quack. The Samazi won't quack. Melco make a jawai. Saline, Samazi won't Saline, Samazi won't quack. jawai.
0: You can see Ebo Taylor talking about his new album. We have a video of the Ghanaian highlife Master at theworld.org. If you have an iPad or iPhone, you can also check it out on Flipboard, where you can literally flip through all our stories. Just go to flipboard.com slash the world. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Worman. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Marco Werman. That's all for us. We're back tomorrow.
5: I'm grinding.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International